Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our Insight series, where we aim to provide relevant, timely, and actionable analysis in discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe, and share. Hello, welcome to Sibline Podcast Series. I'm Guo Hugo-Yu, Lead Asia-Pacific Analyst. I'm joined today by our South Asian Analyst, Supriya Ravashankar. Together, we'll discuss the ongoing political instability in Pakistan and potential economic and security implications. So, former Prime Minister and the leader of the main opposition party, PTI, Imran Khan, was injured in a shooting incident last week when he was leading a mass anti-government protest rally dubbed the Long March. The incident has further stoked the already uh, simmering tensions between Khan, his supporters, and the ruling Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz, with Khan accusing the government and the army of being behind the attack. As the defining ex-critical pledges to resume the long march while pressing for an early election, Pakistan's political landscape looks set to remain highly volatile for the coming months. Now, Supriya, as we basically brief in the introduction, there was a quite significant incident taking place last week during the long march. Can you bring us the most up-to-date development regarding the shooting and how has this, this current attack against Imran Khan contributed to his long march campaign and, and what is his latest strategy? Thank you, Hugo. As you said in the introduction, really the the shooting incident has led to increase in tensions really to a boiling point. And as of now, Imran Khan has said that he will resume his march on Thursday, uh, this Thursday. But like we said, there's not a lot of information regarding the actual incident and investigation has just been launched, but we don't have a lot of information still. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories and conjecture being floated around. What we do know is that there was a video released of the shooter who said that he acted alone and that he was targeting Imran Khan because he felt he was misleading the people. However, like you said in the introduction, Khan has clearly named three people, Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif, uh, the Interior Minister Rana Sanullah and Major General Faisal Nasir, saying that they were behind the shooting incident and what he thinks is a plot to kill him, like a murder attack. And I think that's really interesting in terms of the, the impact of the long march because in September he claimed that there, that he had received intelligence that there was a threat to his life and now he's used the shooting incident to kind of to support that claim and that's really struck a chord with a lot of his supporters and it's come at a time where while obviously the long march did have a lot of attendees and there were the crowds were big they, they weren't as big as people would have thought they were and there was a sense of fatigue in the march. Um, the fact that it was delayed so so many times, it was called off in May, and even now there's a bit. There's, it's being delayed again and again. Like for example, the government changed the date twice yesterday, and it, so the shooting incident has really come at a time where, in a way, Khan kind of needed a boost, and he's gotten just that. So in terms of his strategy going forward, he's really going to galvanize on this incident to try and force early elections. That is the ultimate demand of the long march. And a strategy to do that is to go to Islamabad and really choke the capital in the sense, blocking all roads, entry points, and really pressurizing really the army to act as, uh, as an, uh, an arbiter and really 
push the army to then push the Shahbaz Sharif government to call for early elections. So that's his strategy. I presume because he believes the party and himself is highly popular and gaining momentum. Mm -hmm. That's why he's pressing for early election, right? He because ultimately he he seeks to return to power, right? Absolutely. If there was an early election today, there's no doubt that he would probably win because right. we've seen that he's been winning by polls. He won the Punjab National Assembly seats and he has been popular in the sense no one can deny that so yeah he's definitely trying to capitalize on that right thanks very much and one thing that you are you highlight and we also said in the introduction is his claim about you know this three people blaming them for behinding what they call as an assassination attempt and and they mentioned the basically the army general so that's very interesting isn't it and and why he's basically naming these three people, do we have any sort of a credibility backing up this claim? And, and I guess my third question would be, you know, what does this actually tell us about, you know, Pakistan's army's relationship in politics uh, with the government and various political parties? Yeah, in, in the sense of the, the first question about credibility, well, it's really difficult to say because it's very interesting that he didn't, for example, name anyone from the Punjab government. The shooting incident took place in Punjab, but, the, but Parvez Alai, the chief minister of Punjab, is an ally of the PTI. And if, if there's anyone who should have been responsible for his security, in a sense, it, it would have should have fallen within the jurisdiction of Punjab, but he didn't raise any questions against them or he didn't he didn't flag anything and he targeted people he had been targeting anyway for quite a few months. So in terms of credibility, really the fact that he hasn't said anything different even after the incident does say that he, he might be manipulating the situation. But again, because it is Pakistan and so much of what happens in Pakistan happens behind closed doors, it, it is always difficult to right. say anything for sure. I'm mean, right to understand it might be some some part to do with he's maybe still holding a grudge because he was ousted due to you know quite you know widely reported issues that he had with the, the army and probably you know still uh, quite anger from it. Yeah, absolutely, and that really is a good uh, segue into your second question about his relationship with the army. His long march and his whole movement is as much an anti-establishment movement as it is an anti-America movement against this whole this conspiracy of a foreign hand in his removal. And the fact that the ISI chief Naveen Anjum held a press conference, which is unprecedented in the history of Pakistan, that has been under military rule for a lot of years. To come out and actually say that what Khan is saying is basically is wrong and is it's That's Pakistan's intelligence service, right? Just just yes, yes, it. that is correct. Yeah, and the fact that he made that that he they've actually publicly gone against Imran, a person that they kind of propped up in the first place. I mean, Imran Khan came to power the first time because he had the backing of the Pakistan army. And I think they've realized that maybe that hybrid regime idea was a bit of a mistake, and they probably fear that if Khan comes to power again, it might they might have a bigger problem <laughs> on their hands, so to speak. But at the same time, there's no denying, and there is a lot of groundwork reports on this as well, that while the senior brass of the army are actively against Khan, that the, the lower rank and file seem to have some support for him. I mean, let's not forget that close to 70% of the army comes from Punjab, and Khan has been 
very popular in Punjab. Of course, there is still support for the Sharifs. Let's consider their bastion, but the fact that he won elections there and the fact that majority of the army are now filled with young cadres shows that there is a bit of discontent within the army ranks itself. This is not. I'm not. I don't think. it's going to lead to any kind of situation of a rebellion but i do think that the army are kind of worried about getting everyone to to toe the same line and they think that supporting imran khan would probably show them in a weak position and calling for an early elections and having him come to power would also show show them in a in a weak position but at, at the same time i think they're also under significant pressure from the government the the second part of your question the the their relationship with the pakistan um democratic movement government i think that they are under a lot of pressure because ultimately shahbaz sharif came to power obviously backed by the, by the army it's impossible to do that without being backed by the army took really really difficult decisions about the economy regarding the imf that has made the party incredibly unpopular i mean when they lost elections in punjab that was huge and after all of this if the army kind of abandons them that would be a very difficult relationship to mend so i think the army is under pressure from both sides both from the imran khan side and also from the government side and they really i mean khan claims that there's no back channel negotiations happening that's also highly unlikely because even the army knows that khan knows that he can't come to power without their blessing so to speak and i know i'm i'm, I'm kind of dragging this along but really the the key the key upcoming event to keep an eye on is the appointment of the new army general with the general bajwa retiring on the 29th of november i believe um that could be a big big like tipping point in the long march because if the government gets someone in that that khan disapproves of that could very well raise like the risk of domestic unrest and khan will really push back on that and it could really a turn the situation from like it it we could go from 0 to 100 with that right that's a fascinating point about you know a you said about potentially Imran Khan trying to solve divisions within the party between senior officer uh, officers and the low rank and file soldiers who to whom Imran Khan remains quite popular and the second point about obviously this upcoming appointment for the new uh, army chief do we have any likely candidate and uh, if so are they are there any uh, who might be more well cast uh, in rankai in a more favorable uh, eye you know this time around there's a lot of suspicion about this because usually how it works is is that the chief, the prime minister gets a list of five candidates of like top army usually the people with the longest service or people that like the like the consortiums feels fit and then the uh, and then the prime minister decides and usually they he decides the candidate that is that the army agrees with anyway this time around there's really there hasn't been any conversation there hasn't really been this list of five names has not gone to the prime minister's office as yet and everyone's left in a guessing game so at this point of time no i, I there's no candidate really right i guess the process is not transparent either right Yeah and I also think that they're trying to delay the appointment in a way because let's say that they appoint a new army chief and violence breaks loose and or let's say they don't appoint an army chief sorry and violence breaks loose then then the person in power will ha- there has to be someone at the helm of power to kind of take care of the situation but if if they already appoint an army chief and they're kind of two poles of power 
that would probably make a military strategy against what could well ha- what could well turn into some kind of mob violence rebellion in Islamabad at the end of the long march it would be difficult to tackle that situation when people are looking at two people at the same time and obviously if if the army chief gets appointed while the mob is in Islamabad then that could make violence i mean that could like make it much worse in terms of a violent reaction so i think there is a lot of speculation deliberately so they can buy more time and really understand who could be a good candidate. Okay, that's well explained. Going back to Long March, if we can't, um, so what's next? What are the possible scenarios that we can expect when the Long March resumes and you said you know, can't uh, um, you know, claim that we, they will restart on Thursday? And what will happen when you reach to its destination, uh, the capital is standard? Yeah, irrespective of the scenario, I think the what's eminent is going to be violent clashes between the PTI and Khan supporters and uh, what will not just be Islamabad police, but likely also um, rangers that are professional security personnel within trained within the army. Um, there have been reports that because that the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa uh, Minister of Education, I believe, has said that PTI supporters should arm themselves just in case after the shooting incident, I, I definitely think that the likelihood of gun violence is, is far higher because people are far more scared. And there's very likely going to be episodes of vandalism, targeting of symbols of government, symbols of the army. There is a lot of anti-establishment sentiment right now within the PTI supporters. They've already been blocking key roads and motorways, causing significant disrupt- disruptions around Islamabad and Rawalpindi. And irrespective of what actually happens, I think this is eminent, that the first step is going to be a situation of chaos. Because the government, as we we reported previously, I'm right to understand that the government still tried to basically keep the protest march outside of Islamabad, basically prevent them from entering the city, right? Yes, they fortified the city, so to speak, with shipping containers and whatnot. But the last time something like this happened, which was 2014, PTI supporters ultimately did enter the capital. And the idea that they've said is that, that, so they've also, they've said that the red zone, which is the key area within Islamabad, is really their red line. That's like, if if they try to breach the red zone, which is where the parliament is and all the embassies are, that's when the government is really probably going to go beyond just tear gas. So obviously the idea is to keep them out of Islamabad, but I think the main idea is the red zone. That's their that's their flashpoint, so to speak. Right. Um, so for the people and the business who you know based in Islamabad and based in Pakistan concerned about this and potential trigger points or escalation points when the matches reach to to Islamabad is, is what's looking out for is basically whether they breach the outer defense, you know, the, 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 the major roads uh, leading into the city center, and also most significantly, whether they will try to breach the red room, right? Yes. These will yes. be the signs to look out for. Yes. For significant and- um, escalation of violence and unrest. Exactly. If they target, for example, military personnel and their like related infrastructure, then then absolutely that could be a trigger as well. But in terms of possible scenarios, I think three things could happen. The first is Khan is able to breach the capital. He converts his march into a sit-in. And this could mean probably, like for the, la- the last time that I alluded to the, in 2014, when something similar happened, 
Khan managed to stay in the capital for 120 days. Ultimately, his march was called off when the uh, horrific Peshawari bomb, uh, bombing in the Peshawar school happened. That's what really called off his march. But he was able to stick around for 120 days. So if Khan manages to convert his long march into a sit-in, it would lead to sustained political uh, political risk and political chaos in the capital um, for as long as it continues, really. The second scenario is that if the army feels that they that the shooting, I mean, that the violence has really gone beyond their control and they have to retaliate, they can do that. They may, they may be incidents of shooting, they may be incidents of mass arrest, or internet blockades, crackdown on protesters, and so on and so forth. Some Pakistan watchers have said that they could even potentially be martial law in the form of a coup. I don't necessarily think that's true, though Pakistan's history very well does support such a scenario. For example, in, <laughs> no one can forget how Zia ul Haq in 1977 said that he would stick around for two, three months and after throwing away, after throwing down a Bhutto's government ended up staying for like 10 or 11 years. So there is history of that as well. I don't necessarily think that's possible because right now the army would, it would put the army in direct confrontation with the, the PTI and, and Imran Khan and they're already going through a very tough time. They're already facing extremely high reputational risks and the bitter mention about the rank and file, I don't think that's a scenario they themselves want to get into. But that is a scenario that a lot of people are talking about. And with Pakistan, you never say never. The other scenario, which the, the final scenario, which I think is probably most likely, but would need to more political chaos, is that the army says that they go, he, the army goes to Prime Minister Shabar Sharif and they say, we aren't going to shoot at our own people. We can't do this please, you have 24 or 48 hours and come to some sort of compromise with Imran Khan. This will make the situation a lot worse because there's no way that the Sharif government wants elections because they know they lose such elections, but they will probably have to come up with some kind of solution, some kind of compromise. It could be allowing Khan some kind of leeway, sacrificing something, someone else. We're not sure about that, but it would be a very tight deadline for them to figure it out, so to speak, and then the army will kind of see where the chips fall and go go accordingly. So I think those are the four scenarios, um, and the last one is most likely. Thanks very much, Sophia. And it's very fascinating, obviously, with a lot of moving parts, which no doubt will induce some level of uncertainties. Now, we already discussed uh, the potential base risk for uh, of unrest and violence and clashes. Obviously, um, therefore, there will be direct impact on business operations, on logistics, on transport, and throw up a lot of disruption. If we cast our eyes further away from Pakistan, uh, obviously, Pakistan is a very important country in the South Asian region. And um, uh, unstable Pakistan, uh, as we've seen previous, uh, previously, will have far-reaching implications for, uh, for the region as well. So how has... Pakistan's current dom uh, domestic political condition had any impact on, on its neighbors? Yeah, so let's start with India, the, the most obvious and important neighbor. There hasn't been a lot of commentary in India about what's going on, other than the fact that some people are enjoying the fact that there's domestic political instability. But really, because there's just not a lot of trade, there's not a lot of economic relations really between um, Pakistan and India, there's there's very little 
disruption expected to something like a supply chain for example obviously political tensions in the neighbor in the neighborhood is not a good thing for india there there is anxiety around the fact that they might be this might be a great opportunity for militants to get more active because the government is more preoccupied dealing with the political situation there hasn't really been a lot of indication for that but that is obviously a, a more mid to long term um possibility and and um concern um regarding china and hugo you probably can answer this bit of better than me but it's it's kind of amazing how there hasn't really been any statement from beijing about what's going on obviously for beijing they have to deal with whoever's in power whether that's shabash sharif or imran khan and they yeah, have which, assets which he, he just recently went to china right exactly uh, and met and xi jinping yeah and and talk about that really that that was the pretty focus yeah Yeah and that was great that was the markets in it reacted quite well to that and the fact that he was able to roll over that 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 amount was was shows that obviously Sharif is is able to still have his relationships with Beijing but obviously there has been a lot of concern about the threat to chinese personnel and chinese assets in pakistan that's become a bit of a souring point between pak china relations i think the most interesting neighbor and the neighbor who's really watching this very closely is afghanistan because really afghan pakistan relations under shehbaz sharif have been the lowest probably that they've ever been and there's been um open hostility between the taliban government and the sharif government of course talks with the ttp have almost broken down and we saw them we saw them increase their activity in places like the swat valley but the taliban have actually had better relations with imran khan when they initially came to power last year khan had said they had broken the shackles of slavery they had really breakthroughs to the hakani network so i think that for afghanistan they would prefer imran khan kind of at the helm of government but yeah i think i think the afpak border question is going to be an issue for any prime minister really in power considering that it is such a volatile border and the amount of people and trade that happens every single day between the two countries through that border yeah i think that that's um, probably the neighbor that's keeping the closest eye on what's going on yeah that's very very interesting and i, I guess you know also what's what's watching out is uh, pakistan's overseas diaspora which has been yes, uh, yes uh, quite divided or are they mostly supporting khan mostly supporting khan they've been rallies in london as well in support of the pti outside nawaz sharif's house in the past protesting the sharif government because his, of course it's really his party that's still leading the government so there is definitely activity among the pakistan diaspora who are quite large in number in places like the us and the uk and and are very vocal and active so we can expect we already are actually seeing how the long march is kind of percolating across borders and this is something that we probably continue seeing obviously the the protests won't be at the same scale but It, it, it well enough they'll probably still happen thank you very much supriya and that wraps up our discussion on pakistan and now i'm joined by rianan philips our middle east and north africa analysts who will look around the globe and highlight what's coming up in the next week or so and and what are the events that our uh, teams across different regions will particular focus on rianan or yours 
Thank you. Yep, very busy week coming up in the next couple of weeks as well. Um, so obviously we had the midterm elections held in the US on the 8th of November. We expect results to instigate significant unrest, counter-protests and potential isolated extremist attacks in the coming days and weeks. The risk of unrest is highest nearing polling uh, stations, county election offices and state capital buildings. Um, equally, as an ongoing event, we um, are seeing the Sharm el-Sheikh uh, host the 2022 COP27 climate change conference from the 6th to the 18th of November. A strong security posture at the conference venue, airport, hotels and along major roads will mitigate the elevated risk of significant unrest and the threat of terror attacks. Enhanced security checks due to increased visitor numbers are likely to result in airport delays and increased congestion. In tandem, in Egypt, there are reports of calls for planned nationwide protests on the 11th of November. November. Um, security forces will maintain a heightened posture at likely protest sites. This includes in the capital um, in Cairo's Tahrir Square and Sharm el-Sheikh, which is hosting COP27. Bystander risks and the risk of detention near protests will be heightened during this day. On the 12th of November, Bahrain will, no will host a general election for the population to elect 40 members of the Council of Representatives. There have been calls to boycott the election by activist groups with protests scheduled for Friday 11th of November, particularly in urban areas. Again, Bahrain's tight security posture will mostly mitigate the impact of protest activity and they are expected to be short-lived. In Asia Pacific, from the 15th to the 16th of November, Indonesia will host a G20 Leaders Summit in Bali. The potential attendance of Russian President Vladimir Putin is in doubt due to the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, while Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has been invited as an observer. If Putin does attend, there is a risk that other members may boycott the event. Security protocols have been heightened in Bali in preparation for the summit. And on the 17th of November, UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is scheduled to announce his delayed economic plan. The plan will outline how the government will close a budget gap that is likely to total around £40 billion. Ultimately, market stability will almost certainly be impacted by the announcement, with the government likely to pursue tax hikes and spending cuts. And finally, on the, on the 19th of November, the UN-backed Black Sea Grain export deal between Russia, Ukraine and mediated by Turkey will be up for renewal. Russia withdrew from the deal last week before then U-turning. However, the Kremlin has indicated that it may withdraw again if certain concessions are not made. And so if Russia does pull out again, global food prices will almost certainly spike once more, jeopardising food security for numerous dependent states this winter. Thank you very much, Rhiannon. Looks like another packed week to keep us all busy. That concludes our latest podcast. If you have any comments or questions, please do not hesitate to contact us via info at zipline.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. <laughs>